Well, good morning. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We are going to be looking at two chapters in the book of Acts. It's a, they're, they're longer chapters, so you will be helped if you keep your Bibles open before you. We're going to read most of it by the end of the morning, but we're not going to read all of it. You know, most countries and nations, they have those sort of foundational mythologies that kind of helps them to make sense of their story, right? Every nation has them. Uh, families have them too. I mean, I don't even know if this is true, but I remember hearing, I mean, that, that some distant relative of mine snuck on the Mayflower, right? We have these sort of mythologies that are told to us that help us make sense of our life. Well, we've got actually religious mythologies too that are sort of told to us, that, that are meant to sort of catechize us, but we're also meant to kind of look at them and think, are they actually true? Uh, in 1966, there was an interview with one of the most famous musicians of the time, John Lennon of the Beatles. I'm told it's a famous band. I don't know. And he was uh, being interviewed, and he famously said, this, I quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish. It'll shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right. I will be proven right. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm certain you've heard this sort of religious mythology, right? That with the rise of education, with the rise of secularism, with the rise of, of science, slowly but inevitably, religion in general, and Christianity in particular, will be stamped out. Have you heard this religious mythology? The question is, is it true? Whatever you think of John Lennon the musician, is John Lennon a prophet? Well, according to the Global Christianity um, Center at Gordon-Conwell, it is far from true. Right? If you actually look at the world, we are far more religious today as a world population than we were 100 years ago. I mean, just take the continent of Africa. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century in 1910, about 9% of all of men, women, and children, about 9% self-identified as Christian in the entire continent. Now, 2020, uh, it's about... 50%. It's 49%. Right? You just go and, and there right now are more people gathered to worship Jesus at a Christian church in mainline China than there are in all of Europe. Right? We could just talk about these stats over and over and over again. We are a far more religious world than anyone would have maybe predicted. And yet... At the same time, one of the reasons why people thought that religion was going to sort of decay and Christianity in particular was, well, there was a rise of opposition. There were people and worldviews and nations that were rising and pushing against religion and Christianity in particular. And so the thought was, as a result of this opposition, Christianity would slowly be kind of pushed to the outskirts and then slowly dissipate. But it's not true, right? Opposition comes and goes. It takes many, many forms. And yet, 
Christianity keeps marching forward. It might kind of pop up in different ways, right? It's like that weed in my backyard, right? You pull it out and then it just kind of pops up like the next day, a foot away. That's sort of like Christianity, right? It just keeps growing. You can't stomp it out. And that really is what our text is about today. These two chapters, the big idea is going to be behind me this morning. And it's simply this. Though opposition comes, as it inevitably does, though opposition comes, God will fulfill his promise to bring the gospel to the nations. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And what I want you to see in this text are three types of opposition that come against the first Pauline uh, missionary journey. All right? We're going to see three different types of opposition. The first type of opposition that we're going to see is the opposition of, and, and these are, this is my best way of trying to make them sort of rhyme, okay? So they're not perfect, but um, I like rhyming things. So the, the first opposition that comes against the Christian gospel and, and sort of the, the church going to the Gentiles is the opposition of heresy. The sec- second is jealousy. And the third is idolatry. That's why you pay me the big bucks, okay? Now, we're not going to read all of this text, but let's, let's just kind of orient ourselves to where we're at in the book of Acts, in the story of Acts. So Jesus, Jesus is crucified and ra- rises from the grave in about 30 A.D., and then the start of the book of Acts in chapter 1, right, in chapter 2, you, you've got the um, Pentecost happening in chapter 2. That also happens roughly in uh, 30 AD. And then if you fast forward to chapter 9, which is the conversion of Paul, that's around 33 AD. And, and the story that we have here, starting in chapter 13, that's actually in 47 AD. All right? About 14 years later. So, these two chapters are sort of a condensed telling or retelling of Paul's first missionary journey to the Gentiles, okay? And it's going to move in breakneck speed, okay? In in all, it takes a a little bit more of a year, but it seems like they're gone like, you know, seven days or something. That's not true. They, They stay in these sort of cities, and so what you're going to see is, is Paul and Barnabas, they, they start in a church in Antioch, which is in Syria. They then move to a port city. They then get on a boat and go to Cyprus, minister there for a while, then go to sort of mainline Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And then they take this trade route. You're going to see these various cities, which might mean nothing to us, but, but they are fa- it's like a famous trade route, okay? So, so think of it this way, right? Uh, Paul and Barnabas started in Bellingham, and they go from Bellingham to Everett to Seattle to Tacoma on the famous kind of trade route of the I-5 corridor, right? Okay, that's what Paul's doing, right? Paul is being strategic. He is taking this, this famous route with these famous cities in order to maximize the influence of the gospel. So, let's pick it up in chapter 13. Go with me to verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island uh, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Pallas, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight path of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. We'll stop there. So there we see, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13, that Paul and Barnabas, they're at a church in Antioch. And you see that, I mean, this church, I mean, talk about a deep, you know, bench, right? They've got a jackpot of prophets and teachers. Cha-ching, right? This, this is, they've got leaders. And, and you also see that this is a really diverse church, right? So, so you've got Barnabas from Cyprus, You've got Simeon, a.k.a. Niger, which Niger is a Latin word that means dark or black. And then you've got a, uh, a Gentile named Lucius, and he's from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. And then you've got Menaean, reared in Herod's court, and a rabbi named Saul, right? I mean, talk about a diverse group of leaders here. Another thing that binds them together is the mission to which the Holy Spirit is going to set them out to accomplish, right? And so starting there in verse 3, right, the Holy Spirit, or verse 2, the Holy Spirit comes and says, okay, I've got a particular mission for Paul and Barnabas, set them apart, lay hands on them, pray and fast, get them ready, and then send them off because they've got work to do. And so they leave, right? They go to a port city, get on a boat, and then they go to Cyprus, And there we see, right, when they basically land in Cyprus, they meet their first opponent, Sauron, right? You guys like Lord of the Rings? No? All right, maybe I should have quoted Harry Potter, right? It's it's a magician, a Jewish wizard, okay? Verse 6, he's called a false prophet. He's teaching false doctrine, false truth. He's a deceiver. He's a, for lack of a better term, he's a heretic. And his names even hinted this, right? Look at his names, right? He's got two names. Bar-Jesus, right? Son of Jesus or son of salvation. And then his other name, Alimus, it's an Arabic word, which means skillful one. So here's this guy who is skillfully deceiving others, right? He's a spiritual illusionist. He could sort of talk the talk. He could walk the walk. He, he had some sort of power. He had some sort of influence. 
and yet he was devoid of the Spirit. Well, this Bar-Jesus, he's got a, he's got a friend, right? He, he's a close advisor of someone very, very important in Cyprus. The proconsul, right? The, the Roman governor of Cyprus, Sergius Pallas. Well, Sergius, he, he's intrigued by what he's hearing about Paul and Barnabas. So he says, like, bring them to me. I want to hear what it is that they're teaching. And so he gathers them together. He listens to Paul and Barnabas. But right there, verse 8, Bar-Jesus is like, don't listen to them, right? He, he opposes them. He tries to, 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 to get the governor to kind of walk away from following Jesus and go towards his little brand of spirituality. I mean, isn't, isn't that what heresy does? Isn't this what false doctrine does? It, it slowly seeks to erode the faith, slowly seeks to erode the confidence in God's Historic teaching. And it can subtly do that, can't it? Unchecked, it can have devastating consequences. Well, look at Paul's response, right? It's pretty intense, right? There are days in which I kind of wish I had this spiritual gift, right? You know, he, he, he filled with the Holy Spirit... Paul calls this man his true name. He's not Bar-Jesus. He's Bar-Satan, right? He's son of the devil. And then he blinds him. Now, that, that, that might seem quite cruel, but, but when you really think about it, what this is going on here, there's, there's two things, I think, happening here. The, the first is, this is a theological showdown, all right? It's a theological showdown, and Paul is proving that he's the one his God is the God in control, right? Do, do you remember Moses back in Pharaoh's court? It was a, kind of a, a theological showdown between Moses and Pharaoh and his magicians. Same thing's going on here. But, but, but something else is going on here, and, and I think it's, it, it's really, when you think about it, the, the curse, the punishment, the judgment that comes upon this man, it's fitting. So you see, Bar-Jesus, he is blinding people to the truth, and so what is his punishment? He is now blinded by the truth, right? This is lex telionis, right? The punishment fits the crime. Well, that's the first opponent. Let, let's maybe draw a few applications for us. I think in many ways, and I don't think this generation or even this season or this past year is unique in this, I think there's a lot of fears about false Doctrine, false truth, false teachers. A lot of fears about maybe what our kids are hearing. Concerns about uh, doctrinal infidelity. A lack of faithfulness to God's word and orthodoxy. Sort of worries about modern day heresies. Because heresies morph, right? My, my guess is you don't wake up this morning and go, I'm really worried about Gnosticism. Ah, just... That, that, that's, I'm really worried about that. Like, that's my guess is you've never lost sleep over that. So, so heresies morph. And then my, 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 my wonder is that you've got some sort of fear about these sorts of things. And let me just point out that in many ways, this is why actually churches ought to have doctrinal statements. This is why we have a doctrinal statement. It's the guardrails. It's to say, this is what we believe. This is the historic teaching of the church. 
Some of you might have heard this old saying. It sounds really pious. Um, we are no creed but the Bible. Some of you have heard that. That's really dangerous. Really, really dangerous. Yes, the sole and final authority is God's word. But we are not the first to read God's word. We've got 2,000 years after Christ's resurrection where people have been studying God's word. And we're thankful for that. But, but, but I also think we learned something interesting about even just this bar Jesus. I, I think in many ways, he is a picture perfect of a subset of evangelical Christianity in the West. I mean, just think about it. Here he is. He's attaching himself in some way, fashion, we don't really know, but in some way to Jesus, right? He's got a brand of Jesus. He, he knows God speaks to him. He's got no church. He's under no authority. He's got no one keeping accountability, but it's okay because God speaks to him. Heard, heard, heard this? I, I really love Jesus, and I have lots of deeds. I, I don't need creeds. I'm guessing that was Bar Jesus' motto, right? Theology boring. Oh, just beware of that mentality. Churchless Christianity is a contradiction of terms. This is why we have membership. This is why we gather together to, to link arms because we need one another. It's not just enough for me and a latte and my Bible. We need each other. We need people to speak hard truths, true truths. We're all accidental Pharisees. We're all accidental heretics, right? But the scary part is we don't know where we're those two things, right? And so one of the gifts for the Christian isn't just our union with God, but then he unifies us to brothers and sisters, which then takes manifestation in local churches. Well, let's, let, let's, let's move on. Let's, let's move on to the second opponent. There's the first opponent, the opponent of heresy. I just also just point out briefly in, in that is, I think it's wonderful what Paul and Barnabas do. They don't just point out the heresy. They also positively teach God's word. All right. We need both. It's both and right. It's not enough to just say, that's bad. We also need to say why it's bad, all right? Like, my neighbor the other day was telling me about some cultural sin, and, and she explained it beautifully. She's not even a Christian, right? So it's really easy to say, oh, this is the problem, right? The historian's helpful, but they're great at pointing out the problem. They just don't get the cure, right? We don't need just a doctor walking in saying cancer than walking out. We need to be able to point out sin and heresy, but then we also need to say, this is why it's wrong. Just, just think of uh, uh, in the fourth century, right? Y you have the, the um, Christ heresy with Arius, and it wasn't enough to just say, that's wrong. You then had Athanasius stand up and say, and this is what's right. This is what the Bible actually teaches about the person of Christ. Well, let's, let, let's go on. Let's look at the opponent of jealousy, and what we see starting in verse 13, Paul and Barnabas, they now get in on a ship. They leave Cyprus and they go to sort of mainline Asia Minor. And they make their way to Antioch. Now, don't get confused. This is not the Antioch where they started. This is a different Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And they go to a synagogue, which is their sort of methodology, right? They first go into the synagogue and they talk about Jesus. 
And like Peter's Pentecost sermon and Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, what Paul's going to do, uh, starting in verse 16, is give a sweeping biblical history. It was kind of a biblical theology, starting in verse 16, almost all the way up to his entire sermon, all right? We're not going to get into it, all right? Some of you ladies have been yesterday talked and thought a lot about biblical theology. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to not scratch the surface. It's, it, it's really amazing, but I want to start down in verse 32, all right? So go with me to verse 32. We'll read 32 to the end of the chapter. And we bring you, this is, again, Paul, he, this, we're like halfway through his sermon. And we bring you the good news that was God, that God, what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says to also in another psalm, he will let no, he, uh, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. That's what Ellie read earlier. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting in the synagogue, they broke up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict that which Paul Uh, was spoken, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standings and the leading men of the city to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet again and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll see in Paul's sermon there that he quotes a few Old Testament texts. But but the theme or the thesis or the big idea of Paul's sermon is pretty simple. And it has to do with promise and fulfillment. That's what his sermon's all about. That that God has long promised, way back in the time of Abraham, God has promised that he would bring salvation through his son to the nations. That's the promise. 
the, the promises that God would do that. He would save a people. He would redeem a people. Even the nations, even the Gentiles, he would do that. He promised to do it. And that promise has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Such that if you believe this message, if you turn to Jesus, if you believe that he really died on a cross and rose from the grave, you too can have eternal life and be forgiven. Multiple times you see that theme of belief eternal life, and salvation. Now, that's the gospel, isn't it? Right? That God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that that is the gospel we hold out to you. Not that you can clean yourself up, not, not that you should run from your sin, but that you should run to Jesus who cleanses us from our sins. That's the unique thing about Christianity. The unique thing about Christianity is that through Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with God that's not merited or not gained by what we've done or what we haven't done. I think in many ways that's, that's the gospel and the particular kind of nuance of the gospel that goes to the Jews there, right? The Jews thought, oh, well, we obeyed the, the commands of Moses. And he says really clearly, like, no, you're freed from those You see, the Old Testament and all the rules and commandments, there's multiple functions on about them, right? They they display the character of God, but but one of the biggest ways in which rules and commandments function in the Old Testament is that they expose our need for a Savior, right? They expose our sin. They expose how much we've fallen short of God's glory, God's standard, and how much we need God to actually intercede on us to which he's done in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. If you want to know more about that, if you're curious about that, if you want to do a Bible study about that, come, come see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Well, the gospel goes out. It's received in some sense, but did you notice the opposition that comes? Verse 42, Paul and Barnabas, they're teaching, they're preaching, but the crowd turns to them. We get a glimpse in verse 45 of their motivation for why they had such hostility. They were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul and reviled him. The Jews were jealous, right? Jealous that Barnabas and Paul was sort of gathering a large crowd, maybe. Jealous of the fruitfulness of, this, of their ministry, perhaps. Right? Their jealousy was probably many things, but one of the things we know for certain, and this is sort of the context and why in verse 47, the Old Testament is, is um, quoted, the, the deep jealousy is that Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel that says that even the Gentiles can be saved. Right? That, that, that's the greater work in verse 41. The greater work in the Old Testament that says you're not going to even believe, that greater work is God using Israel and the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ, in order to usher in a kingdom where Gentiles and the nations are in God's kingdom. That is that greater work that all of us should be shocked at. And they're jealous. And so their jealousy could also be, and we see this at the end of the chapter, right? Their jealousy could be, well, well, there's the sort of insiders. And so you see the leaders, men and women, and they're saying, ah, this, this gospel that's going out, it's an attack on our position in the hierarchy of the Jewish order, the Jewish religion. 
right? The, the Jews were the insiders, the religious insiders. They were the sort of good guys. To, to sort of use a, the Broadway hit Hamilton, right? The, the Jews were in the room where it happened. And now they're feeling like Aaron Burr, you know, on the outside looking in. That's how jealousy works, doesn't it, right? I mean, it comes by many names. Envy, resentment, coveting, reviling. It's a desire for control. It's a desire to push against any rival that might threaten your position or something that you want or need. Whether status or power. He wants to keep as much power as possible. That's what jealousy does. Jealousy doesn't naturally or normally just stay with a feeling, right? Right? Ultimately, jealousy unchecked leads to violence. And we see that, don't we? The jealous Jews, they chase Barnabas and Paul out of Antioch in verse 50. They, they arrive in Iconium. I didn't read it, but in chapter 14, we see a plot um, for them to get stoned in which they barely escape in verse 6. And then if you go down in verse 19 of chapter 14, actually that group in Antioch, they then meet up with people in Iconium, right? And then they march down to Lystra and stone Paul. Paul barely survives. Jealousy often has a way of weaponizing itself into verbal and physical violence. Now, I don't think we often think about jealousy my guess is if you kind of went through the Ten Commandments and you thought which are the really bad ones, you wouldn't go to the last one and say, oh, coveting, which is a sort of form of jealousy. You would be like, oh, that's the most harmless one. When was the last time you heard of a sermon about jealousy? Right? I, 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 w- I was thinking about this recently and thinking, there's not a lot of talks. I mean, my guess is someone in this room should read a, write a book about jealousy, right? I'd read that book. But jealousy, for all of us, inevitably from time to time rears its ugly head out from all of our hearts. And it slowly and inevitably pushes the gospel to the corners of our lives. Jealousy, I think, is a sort of chameleon. It takes lots of forms. I'm going to list a few forms that it takes. There's marital jealousy, right? Why isn't my spouse more like them? There's a church or pastoral jealousy. Well, why isn't my church bigger like that church? There's a spiritual jealousy. Why don't I have victory over this sin like they do? Financial jealousy. Why don't I have as much money as my neighbor has? Relational jealousy. Why am I not as popular as they are? Physical jealousy. Why am I not as beautiful as they are? Right, we could go on and on, can't we, right? Jealousy is a chameleon. It can take so many forms. But, but really, when you boil it down, jealousy is a preoccupation with the self. And then what jealousy does is it seeks to sort of protect ourselves, our position, because some sort of rival has come into our, into our lives that's threatening us. It is, after all, a form of self-centeredness, a form of selfishness. It's a form of pride. It is nothing more than the unhealthy preoccupation with ourselves. And I think that there's a, um, that there, there's, a simple, there's a simple way to fight jealousy that Paul even addresses here. I mean, I, I commend you this week 
to actually go through and read Paul's sermon there in Antioch. And I want you to notice, I'll give you just a taste of it. Look at the focus of this sermon. Verse 17, God chose Israel. When he's setting up this biblical theology to make his point that God is bringing salvation through Jesus to the nations. In verse 17, God chose Israel. Verse 18, God lived with Israel in the wilderness. Verse 19, God destroyed the seven nations. Verse 20, God raised up judges. Verse 21 and 22, God gave Israel kings, Saul, then David. Verse 23, and God sent Israel a savior named Jesus Christ, right? I mean, the focus of this sermon is God-centered. God did this. He's promoting a big, glorious, amazing, sovereign God. That's how he's reading the Old Testament. It's all about God, what God's doing, God's promises. If jealousy is a form of navel-gazing, self-centeredness, well, one way we fight that is to turn our attention off of ourselves and onto God. That's what Paul was trying to do in Antioch, right? The Jews were just so focused on themselves, and he's saying, don't you realize God has always been working? God has always been doing this. He's always been fulfilling his promise in the gospel. Stop looking at yourselves. Stop seeking to protect yourself. Stop being jealous. There's nothing that's being threatened except your pride. So this week, I just encourage you, if you sense or if you've experienced or when that jealousy comes up, think about God. Think, 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 think about his works in history, what God has done. Think about the things God's done in your life, your, your testimony. Or think about, I think most powerfully, think about all that God's done in the gospel to save you and redeem you to God himself. All right, let's look at this last opponent. The first, the heretic. The second, jealousy. Now turn to chapter 14. We'll, we'll start in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said to him in a loud voice, stand, up, uh, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice, saying in Laconian, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gate and warned, uh, wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowd. But when the apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Why? We are just men of like nature with you, and we are bringing you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witnesses, for he did, did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Now skip down to verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church there together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained, and there remained no little time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas are run out of Iconium and they land in Lystra. And they see a man who's crippled and Paul heals him in a miraculous way. But the response is ghastly, right? The crowd thinks that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. And they start chanting, right? And they're excited. And then it gets even worse. Like the priest of, of Zeus comes and tries to sacrifice, you know, animals and give it to them, right? Worship Paul and Barnabas. This is the sort of opposition of idolatry, isn't it, right? The worship of other gods. Idolatry basically is taking any good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. It's taking anything in life, whether even it could be a good thing, and making it an ultimate thing. Putting that thing in the center of your life. Saying, that's where I get my security. That's where I get my sense of identity. That's where I get my sense of power. And that's what they were doing there. They were putting Paul and and Barnabas at the center of their lives and saying, that's where we're going to get power. That's where we'll get identity from these men who seem to be Zeus and Hermes incarnate. Well, Barnabas Barnabas and Paul, they they refuse, right? Verse 15. They seek to correct this belief in verses 16 and 17. And then then we sort of end, right? Right before it looks like uh, Paul is going to kind of preach the gospel. He sort of introduces the idea. But right before he does it, it's as if they just sort of shut down the conversation and were left with a sort of cliffhanger because it just seems like in Lystra, right, that, that even though they spoke these words, they, they couldn't restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. And in, in so many ways, I think one of the lessons that we get here is, is that there is an inevitable temptation to worship the messenger and not the message, right? To to prop up a man or a woman and worship them and follow them and give them exclusive loyalty, thinking that our our security and power and authority is all about that messenger instead of what those messengers are seeking to proclaim, instead of getting all of those things in God himself. We, We do this all the time, right? I mean... We all know of this sort of celebrity culture that we live in and how that has sort of catechized us to do that with pastors, theologians. And you could just almost imagine the temptation for Paul and Barnabas to just allow this to happen, right? I mean, be an easy temptation to go about it. Or, or they could probably rationalize it and think something to the effect of, well, if we just receive some of their worship, maybe they'll hear the message. They don't consider it for a moment, do they? And the crowd turns on them. The crowd turns on them. I mean, you, you want to make someone angry? You want to get someone angry? Attack their God. I'm telling you. Nothing makes someone more angry than when you get close to or touch their God. And that's exactly what happens here. Hell hath no fury like an idol scorned, 
And yet, as hostility rises, Paul and Barnabas, they respond in this amazing way. Let me just read it. I I, I skipped it, but I want to focus on this for just the last section in verse 19. But, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, and here's their sermon, their one-verse sermon, saying to them, that through many tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I mean, this is amazing, right? I mean, talk about humble courage. Here they are, stoned. And what, what they could do is, if you just look um, geographically, they're in you know, Lystra. They could just go through Tarshish. They could just go mainline Turkey and go back to Antioch. That's the easy way, right? It's simple. So just go that way. They don't do it, right? They go the exact way they came before because they want to strengthen the church. They want to disciple the church. They want to build up elders and leaders. They want to continue to teach. And they teach a particular theological sermon, right? That through temptations, through trials, you will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, for, for a couple of years, I was on staff with the Navigators. And w- one of the sort of philosophies or methodologies of the Navigators is when you led someone to Christ and they became a new Christian, you would sit down with them and you would disciple them on how to, to do various things like how to read their Bible for themselves, right? How to pray, how to share the gospel in a simple way. That, that's what you did. And yet, one of the things that never dawned on me to train a new believer is that they should have a theology of suffering. And yet that's what Paul does here. He knows they're going to suffer. And so he says, amongst all things, I need to root in you a deep sense of God's goodness and sovereignty, even in the midst of suffering. He, He needs to get the training wheels off of them because he knows suffering is going to come. And he doesn't want them to do something that we've all seen happen, which is we filter our theology through our experience. So we go through something hard, and so we change our theology instead of filtering our experience through our theology. And so I just kind of encouraging you, I think especially in this past year, do you have this sort of theological framework, this sort of understanding of God, that can last when you hear a doctor say cancer? Do you have a a sort of theological framework about God and his goodness and sovereignty when people make fun of you for following Jesus and don't want to be friends with you? You know, not everything is going to go well. I, I think of this when I think about catechizing or discipling my kids, right? I know things are not going to go perfect for them. But how do I do it in such a way that I can remind them that, that following Jesus doesn't mean their life is going to get necessarily easier? In some ways, it might get harder. But they will have a good and gracious and present God to get them through whatever befalls them. 
I mean, this is why I love Pilgrim's Progress, right? You've all wondered why I talk about it. This is why, because it is, I think, the best fictional account of the Christian life that reminds me time and time again that suffering is going to happen and that we need to trust God in the midst of it. I, I think this is why we need friendships and accountability partners and people to go on walks with and pray with because we need to talk about those things that are trials and suffering in our lives. This, this past week, I, I went on a run with uh, Curtis Sorgenfry. He was very mean to me and made me run longer than I wanted to run. But as we were going about halfway through, we just started talking about uh, the, the different trials that we experienced this past year and all of the things that God taught us in the midst of those hardships and trials. I mean, it was the most encouraging. Thing. I think it's the only thing that got me through that run, is just thinking about God's grace in the midst of hardship. I mean, do, do you have a friend like that? Who you can go on walks with and pray with, and I don't recommend running. Um, it's stupid, right? But, but have those friends that, that, that you do, that you talk about. You don't minimize suffering, but you, minimize, but you maximize God's goodness in the midst of it. Oh, we need those friends, don't we? Well, as a result, and we're going to conclude here, right? The very end, we read this. It's a success, right? This is a success. It even says that it's a success. We did all, verse 26, that God told us. We fulfilled God's mission. And I might add, if you look at it, you go, that doesn't look successful to me, right? There's nothing that looks successful on the surface. And yet it was. Because look, chapter 13, the gospel is preached. It's opposed by Bar-Jesus, but Sergius believed. It's preached, it's pushed against, it's opposed by various Jews, but verse, um, but, but, but at the end of chapter, 40, uh, chapter 13, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word, and they were appointed to eternal life, and they believed. And then as they go back, strengthening the church, they made more disciples, meaning more people believed. Say what you want about John Lennon, the, the, the musician, the prophet. He was terrible. He was wrong. Like It keeps going. The gospel will always be opposed. It has been opposed. It will be opposed. But the gospel keeps trucking forward. People continue to believe. I think one of the, the, the last thing I want to just commend to you and remind you, and I think this really is the major application of this text, and it's simply this. You can have confidence in the gospel. Confidence that people will believe it. Confidence that there are still men and women who have not received it yet. Confidence when you meet with your neighbor or talk with a friend or if you go out to another nation that as you preach the gospel, God's going to draw people. He's always done it for 2,000 years. Things will come up. Things will oppose the Christian church. Unique things. But at the end of the day, we can have confidence that God is fulfilling his promise to bring the nations. And when we get to the book of Revelation and you get to that great multitude, there isn't one person missing. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that we can have confidence in your gospel. Confidence that, that you are continually drawing people to yourself. 
Lord, we pray for, for, for faithfulness. We, we pray for courage, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, this week that, that we would help each other and, and strengthen each other's faith, Lord, that we would disciple one another and point each other towards Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray, Lord, if, if men and women are, are going through trials and hardship and suffering, Lord, I just pray that you'd bring friendships to, to share those burdens and that, Lord, you would reveal in a small way. Not, you're never going to reveal all of it, but you'd reveal in small part your, your, care, your, your character and, and what you're doing through it. Lord, we're so grateful for your son and all that you're doing in our lives. And we just pray this in his name. Amen.